You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. United States Marine Corps Major Danny Chung, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Eric. Danny, let's start by, why don't you tell us, uh, why did you decide to join the United States Marine Corps? Well, my parents came to America and brought me over when I was a very young lad. And uh, when I got here, uh, I, I really liked everything about it. And uh, as I grew up, um, it wasn't really something my parents instilled, but it was uh, a lot of what my teachers and my friends instilled in me was uh, giving back to the community. And I really grew up with that uh, sense of uh, civic uh, pride, if you will. And um, knowing that all my uh, you know, other family members back in Korea had to serve at least two years and uh, seeing their attitude in that you know, they really were trying to get out of it or they, they didn't appreciate it, or uh, they didn't want to serve, really uh, turned me off. So I, I think all those little uh, things, little factors throughout my uh, youth uh, propelled me into uh, joining the Corps and uh, enlisting as soon as I could. And, and what year did you enlist? Uh, let's see, 1990, February, just after my uh, birthday. I uh, went down to uh, Colorado Boulevard, just down the road from the Rose Bowl, and uh, signed up with a gunnery sergeant king. And and so so you 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 were living in Pasadena at the time, Pasadena, California. Mm-hmm. And did you know? I mean, did you just go down there to enlist, or or had you? I mean, it was premeditated. You had discussed it with your parents. How, how did it work? Yeah, um, th- one day I just uh, I was I was going to college, and uh, just things weren't working out, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. So uh, just set my mind to it, and uh, drove down there. Didn't make an appointment or anything. Walked right in. Uh, and, of course, the Navy and uh, the Air Force and the Army tried to grab me as I went to the back office where the Marines were and uh, uh, approached the Marine, and I said, I want to enlist. And uh, he said, great, glad to have you here. We'll, we'll consider you, you as a poolie, and uh, we'll get you out over the next uh, maybe four or five months. And I said, no, 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 I want to leave now. And uh, the gunner sergeant told me, why don't you come back next week? We'll get the paperwork done, and we'll ship you off the week after. So in a matter of a couple weeks, uh, I was uh, downrange down to uh, San Diego, uh, where I attended a recruit training depot for 13 weeks, and off I went. How did you know that it was going to be the Marine Corps? I mean, you said you make a you made a beeline to the Marine Corps. Why not the Air Force or the Army or the Navy? You know, if you look at, I think it's a psychological thing when you look at the other services and how they. Uh, promote their services and how they recruit their service members. It's always about, hey, we'll give you money, we'll give you education, we'll give you this, give you that. Uh, the Marines were completely opposite. They posed a challenge to me. And they said, hey, let's see if you can become one of us. Let's see if you've got what it takes to go through 13 weeks of boot camp. Let's see if you can earn the title. And uh, that, uh, along with the fact that the Marines were the smallest group, and, uh, you know, just that just made it feel a little bit more special for me to try to uh, join uh, the best group I possibly could. And, and so how did you wind up in media relations? Because, you know, you, you joined the Corps, probably, you did, probably didn't join the Corps thinking, oh, I'm going to go into public affairs, I'm going to go into media relations, right? 
No, I didn't. In fact, uh, I just enlisted. Um, really open contract. Uh, they they made me take a couple tests and said, uh, "Hey, uh, looks like you've, you've got a brain on your shoulders, or somewhat of a brain. So we'll put you in uh, avionics. Uh, let me fix some planes." And uh, they said, uh, "Here you go. You're going to be an avionics technician. We'll send you to uh, Naval Air Station Millington for about a year, and uh, you can train." on how to fix uh, communication gear that goes inside F-18s and uh, C-130s. And that's what I did. And then, uh, and then from there, uh, I know that um, in, um, in 2006, you actually were managing media queries during combat operations in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, actually, it was much earlier than that, Eric. It was uh, December of 2002, uh, well before the war started, uh, they were looking for some volunteers. And uh, I shot my hand up and I said, I want to leave, I want to go. And uh, I, I didn't belong to a unit that was deployable, so I had to, um, I had to go what we call uh, IA, Individual Augmentation. So I gathered up all my gear and uh, took about a 24-hour flight, jumping from country to country until I finally landed in uh, uh, Kuwait. And... Um, and everything else is history after March 19th, of course. So I'd be interested to know, you know, as a public affairs officer in Iraq during a combat situation, um, you know, we live in this world today where uh, people say the, particularly the cable uh, news, has become exceedingly polarized. You have your right-leaning uh, outlets, you have your left-leaning outlets. And... Um, I wonder, you know, as a public affairs officer, is that something you're aware of? And, and, and can you rely on the media to get out the truth? Or do you feel like it's often put through such a tinted lens that it's difficult to really get your message out? You know, the, the American public, and myself included, we may all feel that there is a tinted lens or uh, a far left or a right leaning, depending on which cable news network or uh, news station you look at. And, uh, but i got to tell you, from my personal experience in having dealt with the professionals in the media news agencies, it's really a matter of, um, per, it, it changes from person to person. Um, you can deal with one news reporter and feel that he or she may be far left-leaning, and then deal with the next one from the same institution or organization and find out that he or she is completely opposite. So it's really not a matter of, I would say, uh, the media agency, more so uh, the individuals who make up that agency. And, it's, and furthermore, it's really about how you treat them and how you deal with them on a one-on-one -on -one basis. It's a relationship. Um, it's, a, it's a function of relationships and how you get along and how open-minded you are. Uh, to this date, I really haven't found any one organization to be polarized. Well, you know, it was um, during the previous administration, uh, you know, they used to say that uh, uh, Vice President uh, uh, Cheney always had instructed people uh, when he got into a hotel room before he got into his room to make sure Fox was on. And, uh, you know, certainly most people see Fox as, you know, fairly conservative, right-leaning news outlet. Uh, did you ever work with anybody from Fox that was exceedingly left-leaning? Uh, I can't recall that I did. Um, but I can tell you, I worked with, um, his name escapes me, I believe. He just went over to, um, he was the gentleman who came from CNN over to Fox recently, Brian Henney, I believe. 
And uh, I, he stayed with me for about two days, and uh, we conducted several interviews with high-ranking uh, officers. And uh, this wasn't just my opinion, but it was, uh, you know, the interviewee's opinions as well, that he was very fair and balanced, no pun intended against their uh, little um, <laughs> motto, but he was very balanced, very fair, and uh, he really was interested um, in obtaining the truth. And, uh, and the more objective he was, the more willing um, the interviewees were willing to give more information. So uh, once again, uh, relationships, building that trust, and being able to speak to one another as uh, professional individuals rather than, hey, I'm from the left, you're from the military right, let's see if we can battle this out. That really wasn't the case. Well, well, let's talk about that for a minute, because I know um, when uh, President uh, uh, Afghanistan, Af- Afghanistan President Karzai visited Central Command, you were actually handpicked as the guy to supervise the media relations component of that visit. So, I mean, to what extent when you're deciding, because, I mean, I've got to think you've got finite time and space, when you're deciding who's going to get access, to what extent does, I guess, the media's willingness to play ball by your rules uh, dictate how much access they're going to be afforded in the future? Uh, I guess I'm sorry, Eric. I'm not really following what you're asking here. Well, you know, you hear that often in Washington, the reason that a journalist might not ask a difficult question during an interview is because they don't want to lose their access in future situations. That, that, you know, there's this culture where you can be iced out unless you play by the rules. And I mean, I want, to what extent, um, you know, are you able to actually, you know, control what gets asked and what doesn't get asked through the prospect of access in the future? You know, uh, I'll tell you from my own personal experience that uh, before I deal with any media organization or reporter for that matter, I do due diligence in some research, some background research in the stories, uh, the broadcasts that that reporter has uh, written. Um, I'll also call up other military public affairs officers who that person has dealt with and try to find out what, what is the angle or... Uh, Where is this reporter coming from? Um, There are reporters who are a little bit harder to work with. Uh, There are reporters who ask really difficult and challenging questions. There are even reporters out there who, um, in all seriousness, attempt to um, make you say things that you don't want to say. But as long as they maintain their professionalism and they don't break any ground rules that we've established for instance publishing photos of uh, debt service members before next of kin or uh, anything of that matter there's really nothing that we even attempt to do to try to uh, cast them out maybe they might have a negative reputation amongst the military PAOs and maybe we might say hey that uh, Eric guy he, he asked some tough questions and maybe we don't want to invite him um, that just doesn't happen. Uh, we, we let everybody in, we give everybody equal access, and uh, we just try to stay away from um, hand-picking our favorites, if you will. So, um, you know, from, from 40,000 uh, feet looking down, um, give me an overview. What is the mandate of a public affairs officer at the United States Marine Corps? The mandate of a public affairs officer is to get the most accurate information out to our public's in a timely manner. 
without any uh, without any um, excess uh, input or um, um, or spin, if you will. Um, it, it's to it's to represent our organization in the most transparent fashion possible, while balancing that with the security opera, uh, operational security measures that are necessary for an organization like the Marine Corps to uh, properly function. So how does that work? Because I know you have a top secret clearance, you're active. I mean, how do you balance uh, public information versus information that could uh, potentially, um, um, uh, you know, uh, potentially be a detriment on operational security? Well, some things are very easy. Um, if, uh, for instance, uh, like when I was in uh, Iraq, we had uh, we had to pull uh, Geraldo Rivera out of the desert because he was drawing a map in the sand and uh, showing the whole world where everybody was located relevant uh, relative to where he was. Uh, things like that are very easy to uh, discern and very easy to act upon. Uh, you're out of there. We'll pull you out any way we can uh, because he put the lives of my fellow Marines or anybody else that works in our organization at risk. So. That's easy. The challenge comes when we're not as familiar with the issues and perhaps the secondary and tertiary uh, follow-on effects that uh, releasing such information might have. Uh, You can imagine that uh, even as a major in the Marine Corps that I'm pretty low on the uh, totem pole uh, if you look at the Department of Defense as a whole. And I certainly don't have all the answers uh, and I certainly don't have a 40,000 foot view over everything. So it it does require due diligence and it does require a lot of research on our part. And uh, that really presents the biggest challenge for us because we we have to make sure that we're releasing all the information we can and making sure the American public knows what we're doing. But then to balance that with what may happen, not just one, two, three years down the road, but what may happen a decade later. You know, you, um, I know you uh, uh, studied uh, the art of warfare, um, and I also know that, you know, as you've been an officer with the Marine Corps, you earned an MBA. So, I mean, what, what have you learned from your academic studies and um, also from, uh, um, you know, the, the art of warfare that has helped you, um, you know, be a better communicator? Oh, that's that's very easy. I think the biggest lesson that all Marine officers, especially, learn is uh, the the skill of uh, proper planning, uh, proper planning under a uh, tight deadline, and um, if I might even add, under the most austere conditions, uh, no resources, lack of personnel, no sleep, no time, and uh, getting a monumental mission accomplished um, you know, in, in Marine Corps fashion. So I think that's one of the biggest things that I've learned is uh, proper planning. You know, I, I can see, obviously, in a, in a command and control type of environment, how planning is obviously critical. But one of the things I think about with social media communications is, you know, you're having these conversations with people. And, you know, you think to yourself, sometimes I think to myself before I go to a social situation, oh, if I get into, you know, a difficult situation with these people and there's this awkward pause, what am I going to say? You know, what am I going to talk about? Um, how am I going to make sure the conversation keeps flowing? You know, that's, it's, it's enough of a struggle in a social situation. 
But I mean, when you're dealing with matters like operational security and national security, how do you communicate in conversations via social media, you know, and 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 get the word out um, on behalf of uh, the Marine Corps, and and protect the organization and the country at the same time? I mean, it seems like that must be in- incredibly difficult. Well, I wouldn't say it's incredibly difficult. It, it is difficult uh, trying to balance operational security with uh, the release of free flow of uh, releasable information. Um, for the most part, um, because we're confined to our small uh, portion of what we deal with, that gives us uh, some left and right lateral limits so that we're not having to um, go beyond the scope of uh, our immediate area. So that kind of limits um, the scope a little bit. As far as uh, in a social environment, I would say that um, what's interesting is most people appreciate the situation that military members are in. Most people understand that there are certain things that they're not privy to, nor should they be. Um, and most people who... who um, who have some semblance of uh, you know, an understanding of how the military works, uh, truly appreciate and understand that you know, there are certain things that we just can't talk about and uh, that may make us uncomfortable. And uh, I've, I've been in many uh, social situations where people clearly know uh, that I'm a Marine Corps officer and I'm having just returned from a deployment that, they, uh, that I've been... Um, I've been privy to certain types of information, and uh, they will avoid asking or even uh, mentioning such items. And uh, I, I do I appreciate that very much as well. Uh, when I deal with my uh, colleagues or my cohort in my uh, MBA class, uh, I'm the only uh, military member in that class of 27 uh, students who are mainly uh, made up of executives. And uh, they're very respectful of the military, and um, they have a very clear understanding, maybe not of what I do specifically and what kind of information that I deal with on a day-to-day basis, but they know enough to know not to ask, if that makes sense. Um, this is a friend from uh, a, a question from my Facebook friend, Casey Peterson, and he asks, has the access to email and social networking sites that the deployed Marines now have created OPSEC issues, or has it just replaced the letter home? And do Marines find that they have to monitor what goes out on these sites, especially concerning videos uh, posted to LiveLeak and YouTube? Hmm. Uh, let me start with, uh, um, well, I, I do believe it, it did replace uh, the letters that are going home. Um, as far as monitoring every single um, piece, uh, every single message or email or video or picture that goes out, uh, I think it's, it's, it's silly to think that anybody could uh, stay on top of all of that. Um, I think one of the most profound things that was mentioned by uh, one of the se- uh, senior vice presidents at uh, Fleischman Hilliard at the Marine Corps conference earlier this year was that there is no control over social media. We have lost control uh, since the day it started. Uh, actually, it wasn't uh, Fleischman Heller. It was the uh, business uh, professor at the Tuck uh, Business School at Dartmouth who said that. And I think that's true. We, we did lose, uh, we lost control immediately. As soon as the social media uh, environment 
took place and uh, established itself, um, we did not have control over uh, that medium any longer. Uh, any semblance of control is, uh, is really just mythical. Having said that, I will further tell you, Eric, that when things get passed through the social medium, it's really not a function um, of the public affairs unit, such as myself, a public affairs officer, to stay on top of uh, those things and maybe try to filter everything out. It really becomes a leadership issue. Um, what is the commander, what is the platoon commander down in uh, the desert of Iraq telling his uh, Marines? Is he instilling the proper leadership amongst those Marines and instilling the values and the protocols that ensure operational security? Or is he just letting it go and then pointing the finger uh, in a certain way when something uh, negative happens and gets released on YouTube or Facebook? So what we really have to do is peel back the layer and say, all right, what's the fundamental essence of what we're trying to avoid? One, we're trying to avoid anybody from getting injured or harmed in any way based on somebody releasing some type of information that should not have gone out. Case example, Geraldo Rivera, uh, though he wasn't a Marine. Um, I would say, second, secondly, that there are certain things that happen that Marines or any service member may take photos of or take video of that gets released. That has to be balanced on a case-by-case basis. If it's something that's happening and it's not going to violate operational security, the American public need to know immediately. And we need to address that issue. Um, unfortunately, bad things happen. Uh, we are not 100%. Um, uh, we don't do the right thing 100% of the time. Case in point, Abu Ghraib. When those photos uh, surfaced, we got them out immediately, and we addressed it immediately. Um, that's the kind of action that needs to take place. When a Marine saves the life of another Marine or saves a civilian's life from a burning vehicle, whether it's in Iraq or Okinawa, that story needs to get out immediately. So, it's not, so as a public affairs officer, I don't just look for the good things to push out. I'm looking for everything to push out that paints the Marine Corps in the most transparent fashion possible. It's one thing to say every service member is a spokesperson, and I know that's uh, you know the, uh, the, the the motto, the slogan of mm-hmm. uh, of the U.S. Army. Uh, but it's another thing to actually empower them to endeavor to win trust and confidence in a combat situation with social media. So my question is. Do you foresee the day when laptops and handhelds will be standard issue? Wow, standard issue? Um, I, I, I don't know. Um, you know, I'll take a quote out of Secretary Gates is, uh, uh, is that, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to try to foresee the future when uh, I'm having a hard time dealing with the present. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, that was, I was just trying to be humorous a little bit. But I really don't know whether we're going to issue laptops to every single service member. The day may come when uh, that day may come. Uh, as far as every service member or every Marine being a spokesperson, that's actually a Marine phrase. And we really believe that. We believe our best spokespeople uh, are the actual Marines uh, who are 
down on the ground. Um, so personally, when I go out to conduct and facilitate an interview with uh, CNN or Fox News, I don't look for the colonel or the general. What I do is I look for that young Marine who just came back off patrol, got four hours of sleep, and is still cleaning his weapon before he goes off and hits the rack. He's the one who's going to be able to accurately portray what happened out on that patrol. And what we do to mitigate the possibility of perhaps giving out too much information is before every deployment, a public affairs officer like myself will uh, brief up all the Marines. We'll give them a quick hip pocket uh, training on uh, how we should present ourselves as the Marines, uh, what we can say, what we should not say, and why we shouldn't say those things. But we give them very broad left and right lateral limits, and we let them be themselves in front of the camera or on the microphone, because that's what the American people want to hear. They don't want to hear some stuffy major who is a public affairs officer, a spokesperson, uh, somebody who went to school and learned how to speak uh, with uh, messages. They want to hear uh, the foul-mouthed young Marine who just got off uh, patrol. And that's more genuine and that's more sincere. Uh, it's, it's difficult enough um, to convince a CEO that channels like search engine optimization and social media and blogs actually matter, in some cases more than advertising and conventional media. Um, how do you convince a commanding officer that social media communications can be used to help them achieve their objectives? Wow. Um, two parts to that. Uh, one is most senior leaders, including CEOs, I believe are smart enough to realize that there's so much value in search engine optimization, uh, social media networks, that they just can't but embrace it. That's the easy part for us as professional communicators when you have a boss who really embraces that and says, all right, let the horses loose. Let's take full advantage of this new medium and uh, let's get our message out. The more difficult part, and I would say a smaller, much smaller fraction, are the bosses who are perhaps a little bit, um, may, maybe a little bit older, maybe uh, not as... Uh, educated in social media and uh, just are not really fully aware of um, what's what even search engine optimization is um, these are these are very brand new terms and uh, every day there's uh, there's new terms that are coming out um, you know what a, a good example I think is uh, when um, I believe it was 2002 when uh, Home Depot uh, got really slammed in the face uh, when uh, MSNBC came out and uh, reported that there was over 6,000 individual reports of negative feedback uh, on this website that they weren't even aware that existed. And the CEO came right out, and even though his uh, PR guy told him that uh, you know, this might just get elevated into mainstream TV news media because it hadn't gone up to that level by then, uh, he was still uh, willing to embrace social media. And his first step was to uh, address, uh, address that, uh, that forum online. He himself got on there and started typing out responses 
Um, and I thought that was uh, that, that's great. That's those are the kind of bosses we need. People who are willing to embrace the future. Um, if the boss doesn't, all we can do is continue to persuade them. Um, they're you know they're the boss, and I guess uh, I guess uh, that comes with being a boss is that uh, you can make those kind of decisions, but. Also, uh, I hope they realize that they will uh, also reap uh, whatever uh, they may that may come down the road for not having taken advantage and having to um, having to face those opportunity costs uh, that are lost. Now, um, um, Major, I know that uh, you are you know not at the top of the totem pole. Um, but nevertheless, I'd be interested to know from you. I want to read f- to you a, a clip from an editorial that ran in the uh, Gazette uh, in, in uh, Charleston, uh, West Virginia. Uh, this is from October 29th, and the headline is Quagmire, Afghan War Futility. And um, I'll read for you. I'd like to read for you the first few paragraphs and then get your response to this. Uh, 14 U.S. troops were killed in Afghanistan Monday, followed by eight more Tuesday, bringing the October toll to 55, the worst monthly loss. This painful tally is doubly tragic because most Americans now realize that the costly U.S. sacrifice in the wild mountain land accomplished little. Eight years ago, just after the historic 9-11 terrorism strike, it was appropriate for American forces to help northern tribes expel the fanatical Taliban regime that sheltered al-Qaeda murderers. However, the Bush White House soon tired of Afghanistan and switched instead to the unnecessary invasion in Afghanistan. Uh, both Middle East war zones became quagmires. Again, this is at an editorial I'm reading. Um, today, the Afghan struggle is futile, according to a gung-ho U.S. officer who worked hard in, the co- in a combat regime, then decided it was pointless. Former Marine Captain Matthew Ho went to southern Afghanistan as a State Department operative against Taliban insurgents. Now he has quit, submitting a damning letter of resignation which was leaked in Tuesday's Washington Post. Captain Ho wrote that the primitive fundamentalist Afghan tribes are fighting simply because they consider U.S. soldiers to be, a f- to be foreign intruders in their country, just as they previously considered Russian occupiers in the 1980s. Um, like the Soviets, we continue to secure and bolster a failing state while encouraging an ideology and system of government unknown and unwanted by its people, his letter said. Now, when I go to the, uh, you've heard of this, of this guy who resigned and wrote this letter? Yes. Okay, when I go to the marines.com website, I don't see anything about this here. Um, I understand that's not your decision because you're one in many, and uh, I would imagine that decision was made a, a lot higher up. But if you were in charge, I mean, if, if you were the top guy, do you think it would make sense to acknowledge something like this at Marines.com? And do you think that it potentially damages the credibility of Marines.com to not acknowledge that? Um, well, we have to, I believe, really think about the purpose of having a Marines.com. Um, though I have not worked in that aspect of uh public affairs. Um, I do know some people who do work there, and uh, from my recollection, it serves two purposes. Uh, one, or three purposes. One is it's a recruiting effort. Um, young young uh, men and women can go up to, uh, go online to marines.com and get more information as to uh, the training and how to enlist or how to become an officer. Uh, the second aspect, and majority um, of the function of Marines.com uh, is that 
it serves the internal community for an internal communication piece so that if I, as a Marine major, want to go online to find out, um, I don't know, whatever the topic of the day may be, uh, whether a certain unit got an award, uh, where our units are, and um, what they're doing. That might be my first uh, place um, that I might look for. The third aspect, and I'm not sure how, uh, what proportion this uh, comes out to be, uh, is to relay some information to the, uh, to the American public. Um, personally, I don't uh, think a lot of people go to Marines.com to garner public information. Um, even as, uh, as from speaking with my civilian counterparts, most of them will go to the civilian news agencies to find out about Marines instead of going to the Marines.com to find out about Marines. Um, as far as uh, what's going on in Afghanistan and uh, what Mr. Ho uh, came out and uh, said um, to the media, I mean, that, that is, in essence, what we do, what we fight for on a daily basis, is the ability for every single living, breathing American citizen to be able to come out and write these type of damning letters, uh, if they feel that's uh, how they feel, or to come out and uh, give praise to what's going on. Um, in the end, do I have any particular opinion about what Mr. Ho said? Um, not really. Uh, I, I don't believe I even read his letter. Uh, I saw it on the news. I knew that he came out and said something to this effect. Um, how is that really going to serve uh, Marine Corps or what I do as a Marine officer? Um, not a whole lot. It's not really going to ha have a tremendous uh, effect on what I do and how I do it. Uh, I have a tremendous amount of um, love for my Corps. Uh, I, I am loyal to my Marine Corps. Uh, and. Um, I just didn't feel that on a personal level that I would have said something that way. My uh, Twitter friend, Eric Deutsch, asks the question, and he starts it by saying he's not sure you'd be in a position to discuss this, but he'd love to hear about the U.S. Uh, military's social media strategy in the Middle East. Wow. Um, I really don't know. Uh, that's the bottom line truth. I don't know what the military strategy is over there in terms of social media. Um, I would have to, let's see, it, I, I would have to, my professional opinion would be that there are not enough, um, there's not enough of an infrastructure out there to really warrant one, uh, that might be as effective. Um, in all my deployments, what I can tell you is that instead of utilizing social media when I was in Pakistan or uh, Iraq or even Sri Lanka, um, what we focused, what my team and I focused on were really um, literature, uh, paper, uh, written uh, stories on paper, and uh, radio broadcasts. Those were the two primary means of getting the information out. Oh, I'm sorry. And, uh, yeah, radio broadcasts. <laughs> But when you look at um, all the coverage of the electoral protests in Iran, you saw that Twitter and Facebook and all these uh, social media tools and accessing them via handhelds put a huge role in, um, in uh, the resistance being able to organize, so much so that I know the U.S. Department of State actually contacted Twitter and asked them to delay a scheduled postponement, a scheduled maintenance 
um, so that uh, you know, not, it's not to take the sail out of the winds of the protesters who were putting pressure on um, uh, the the uh, Islamic Republic of Iran and uh, the uh, the folks um, uh, in the Ahmadinejad campaign. Um, mm-hmm. So I wonder. I mean, are you, I've got to think now that you know these types of uh, uh, channels are something that's being considered not just on a public affairs side, but on a uh, information operations side as well. Oh, I'm sure it is, and uh, I, I don't deal with that side of uh, the military, so I couldn't really answer that in those respects, And nor have I spent any time in Iran uh, that I could speak to you about uh, the level of involvement um, the Iranians have with uh, social media. Although I have to say that I was extremely impressed by the way that the Iranian people came out and used uh, their handheld devices to uh, Twitter and uh, use the social media networks to uh, get their voice heard. And I think that's that's a phenomenal, phenomenal um, um, move forward in, in terms of opening up communications internationally, globally, uh, that we can start hearing everybody's voice and not just uh, those whose governments allow them to speak. Um, but once again, when we get back to places like Iraq, uh, back in 0203 when I was there, um, it was really about getting on the radio, um, speaking to um, uh, the people, the Iraqi people, on a one-on-one basis that made the most difference. Um, I um, I want to ask you a question. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned to you that uh, Wired Magazine is pretty much my favorite new media magazine. And uh, last month they wrote a story about uh, the Security of Defense, uh, Robert Gates. And I wanted to read a passage from the story and get your opinion on it. Um, so I'll, I'll read right now. And this is ran in the... Um, do, you, do you know which issue it was? Was it? Was it... I think it's probably the October issue. But I'll have a link to the story in the show notes. Um, Gates learned that MRAPs... uh, No, I'm sorry. Let me start over again. Gates learned about MRAPs, not from his generals, but from an April 2007 article in USA Today. Quote, Nobody wanted the things because they were afraid they'd wind up with thousands of them in a big car park at the end of the war, Gates says. My attitude was, if you're in a war, it's all in. I don't care what we have left over at the end. So Gates ordered a task force to figure out how to deliver thousands of MRAPs a month by 2008. And just uh, as a footnote, for those of you uh, who don't know what an MRAP, it's it's an armored uh, transport. Um, And I'll, I'll start quoting again. This was, to put it gently, crazy talk. Typically, defense contractors crank out just a few hundred armored vehicles in a year. But Task Force Chief John Young set up a plan to buy 17,000 specialized tires per month. Michelin, the sole supplier, was producing less than 1,000. And 21,000 tons per month of high-strength ballistic steel. It would eventually cost $25 billion, a lot of money, even at the Pentagon. Gates put Young's plan into practice. He asked Congress for permission to expand manufacturing lines with $1.2 billion from other programs and he activated a rarely used Cold War law to force steelmakers to prioritize sales to the Pentagon's MRAP manufacturers. Monthly, MRAP deliveries climbed to 1,189 by the end of the year. Today, there are 13,000 MRAPs deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan. IED attacks have gone up. 
but in the 329 bombings involved in MRAPs in Afghanistan so far this year, only five service members have died. The Gates Doctrine was emerging. Spare nothing to win today's war today. Don't let the future distract you from the present day. Um, is this something you've seen? I mean, how, do, do you see and, and do your colleagues, you know, at, at, at your level and your ranks, people who you're working with, acknowledge sort of this Gates Doctrine of focusing on winning the war today instead of tomorrow's war as being something that's been an improvement? You know, really, Eric, um, one, I haven't been back uh, deployed in uh, several years now, so uh, especially since the, um, uh, the let, let me stop the you. Let me stop you one minute. Mm-hmm. Let me stop you one minute. Let me, let me give you, let me just say here, I'm asking you this, uh, uh, Danny, as an individual, as an American citizen. I understand you can't speak, perf- you can't speak as the voice of DOD here, but you obviously, as, you know, a career service member, uh, who, who's been, you know, you, you have inside access, you know a lot more than we do. So what, I, what I'm interested in here is your personal take. I mean, what can you give me, you know, not as an official spokesperson for the U.S. Marine Corps, but as an American? Well, I, I got to tell you, I'm one and the same. Uh, what you hear right now is, is a U.S. Marine, American citizen, uh, Danny Chung, one each. Uh, you really can't separate those things. Um, here's the thing. But it's uh, worth a try, right? It, it was, and I appreciate you trying. When the MRAPs first came out, uh, we, we liked the idea of it. It was great because, um, and, and I've never ridden in one, nor have I been deployed with one. But I was deployed to Iraq before we had anything that even closely resembles a, uh, I, b- I believe that stands for a mine-resistant ambush uh, protection uh, MRAP is what it stands for. Um, We didn't have anything that even closely resembled that. Uh, I remember driving through Baghdad, driving all the way up to Baghdad in a soft-skinned Humvee. um, And, you know, I got to tell you, uh, we were a little ignorant back then, and ignorance is bliss. But when I think back on it, I get cold shivers uh, when I think back on uh, what might have happened and what could have happened. I'm glad these things were developed, MRAPs uh, and the next follow-on technology, whatever we want to call it, and whoever makes it, whether it's uh, uh, Michelin that supplies the tires or BAE systems or whoever it may be, I'm glad we've got a Secretary of Defense who sees the clear picture and has the, uh, the focus on the individual soldiers, Marines, sailors, and airmen's lives in focus. That's what's most important. And we need to have a system that protects our service members at all costs. And I, and I love the fact that he said this. And I love the fact that he's implementing billions of dollars into this, because this is what we need to fight today's war. Now, am I saying MRAP is the answer uh, and, and, you know, the, uh, to, to our success in all the wars? No, absolutely not. Uh, I know MRAPs have uh, issues uh, in and of themselves, and what we have to understand is that no matter how great our technology, no matter what we come up with, whatever the latest thing, whiz-bang item we come up with to protect ourselves from IEDs, we are not dealing with a static enemy. We're dealing with an enemy that thinks and breathes just like we do, and when we attack them, uh, with uh, strategy A, they'll come back with counter strategy B, and then we'll formulate a strategy C, and guess what? It just keeps going back and forth. 
So I, I don't think this is going to be the end-all, be-all, but we need to take those steps. If we're not progressing, we're not fighting uh, smart. Major, final question, and I understand uh, you know, you're, you're going to be somewhat uh, limited on, on what you can give me here, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Um, what is the general sentiment inside the United States Marine Corps towards Secretary of Defense Robert Gates in comparison to Donald Rumsfeld? Wow, that's a, that's a pretty big question. Um, I, I don't know that I've ever asked anybody that question. Um, I guess I can answer that from a personal uh, pers- perspective, and that is that uh, we have made vast improvements since Secretary Gates has taken over as the uh, Department of Defense uh, Secretary. Um, we're seeing more... Um, uh, let me take that back. I am seeing more um, um, advancements or uh, what do we want to call this, Um, prioritization towards uh, the service members who are out fighting the war. Um, Did did this solve, did this make everything better? Absolutely not. Uh, as, As you and I both know, along with the American public and maybe the international public, uh, we're, we're still in the midst of uh, requesting more troops for Afghanistan. And when you get boots on the ground in Afghanistan or any one of those countries, um, you know, the service members, are they really concerned about that 50,000-foot overview, that strategic view of what the Secretary of Defense is doing? I, my personal opinion is no. Uh, when I was down downrange, uh, we were worried about... Um, where we were going to sleep, how we were going to set up our defenses, and how we were going to do our job the next day without getting killed. And uh, that's about all the time we have on a daily basis uh, to focus on. Anything beyond that, and uh, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be capable of doing our jobs. Major Danny Chung, United States Marine Corps, thank you for your service and for your time. It's my pleasure, Eric. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. 